Well, good morning again. Good morning to all of you, those in person, those of you who are joining us online. We're so glad to have you with us. About 12 years ago, I watched uh, an interesting movie titled Vantage Point. I don't know if any of you have seen the film, but it was about an attempted presidential assassination. And the thing that made the film so unique was how many different perspectives it provided regarding the very same incident. The movie was basically the story being replayed over and over again from the unique vantage point of different people who were present at the time. You'd watch one person's perspective and, and you'd think you know the whole story, but then you see another person's perspective and it enables you to see something you couldn't see before. And it just keeps going and going and going as all these people told this story from, or saw this story from their own eyes. And the, the, the film clearly highlights the truth that things aren't always as they seem. Have you ever found that out to be true in life? The, the right perspective is very important, especially when you were going through some kind of a hardship. The reason that I bring all this up is because we come now in the book of John to an incident in Jesus' ministry that illustrates this very principle. Specifically, it helps us to see how we need to mature as Christians in such a way that we can begin to look at life and many of its circumstances with more of a divine perspective. Progress in all of our journey towards Christ-likeness requires us to learn to frame things within the proper understanding of our God's character and of our God's attributes. Because that kind of perspective is indeed a vantage point that, that really changes everything. The Bible tells us of several people who learned this vital lesson. And one popular story is that one of David and Goliath. It is, a, it is a prime example. The armies of Israel, all who were trained soldiers, they had fled in fear before this giant of a man named Goliath. But David, a small shepherd boy, calmly stood his ground. He, he said rather brashly in 1 Samuel 17, 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then he began to talk a little bit of smack to Goliath in verses 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord shall deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those things, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands." Well, before the day was over, a stone from David's slingshot hit that giant right between his headlights and knocked him to the ground. And just as David said, he beheaded that man and Israel prevailed against its enemy. And the difference was perspective. The Israelite army, they looked at everything from the ground level. 
Conversely, David had more of a divine perspective. And can you see the difference between the two? This is the same vantage point that became a turning point in the life of the prophet Habakkuk. There was a time when he looked at, all, at the people of Israel and he saw nothing but oppression. He saw nothing but wrongdoing. From his perspective, it looked as if God's sense of justice was completely gone. Habakkuk 1, 2, and 3, he says this, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing, destruction, and violence are before me? There is strife and conflict abounds. But then by faith, the prophet had an encounter with Almighty God, and after that, he too enjoyed a divine perspective, so much so that he concluded his book by writing this in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crops fail, and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. These biblical examples clearly show us that perspective does indeed make all the difference in the world. In fact, let me ask you, what is your vantage point at this moment? I think it is an excellent question for us to consider with all the unrest going on in our nation and in our world. So I'll ask, it again. I'll ask it again. Do you tend to look at things from the ground level or is it your personal habit to seek a more divine perspective? Well, as I said, our text for this morning underscores the importance of the latter, the divine perspective. As you know, we've been in a study from the book of John and if you were here last week, you'll remember at the end of chapter 10, after Jesus once again claimed to be the Messiah, God who had come in the flesh, the people had threatened to stone him. And because of this, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness in Perea. That was a part of the country where John the Baptist had earlier been preaching and baptizing. In John 10, 41, it tells us that Jesus had a fruitful ministry in that remote area, and that many people had in fact put their trust and faith in him. But now, as we move into the 11th chapter of John, John tells us that in the midst of all of this success, a personal emergency arose. Word came from the town of Bethany that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was very ill. And one thing you need to understand is that this three-sibling family was very near and dear to our Savior, Jesus. We know this from the other gospel writers because they share about his unique affection for them. He also liked being at their home. It was a retreat of sorts for him. It was a place where he could kick off his sandals and he could rest away from the constant demands of the multitudes that were always following him. Well, when Lazarus became sick, Jesus was a two-day journey from Bethany. 
So let's turn to John chapter 11 as we read this together. And as we do so, I want you to notice something in their message. Mary and Martha do not ask Jesus to come to their aid. They just informed Jesus of Lazarus' illness, and they assumed that he would come quickly. After all, they knew Jesus. He was their friend. They understood his wonderful compassion. Of course, Jesus would come. To think otherwise would just be an absurd thought. But surprisingly, Jesus didn't drop everything he was doing and hurry to their home. Instead, he waited for two more days. So let's look at the text itself. I'll be read, we'll read together John 1, 11 through 44. It's a long line of scripture. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. You can follow along if you don't have your Bible, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on our Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So they told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will die even though, will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, 
but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Okay, since we've already established how important it is to maintain the proper perspective, I believe this story will help to gain, allow us to gain a more divine perspective as we go through life, especially when we are enduring heartbreak, especially when we are going through some very difficult issues. And I want to discuss three, three very important truths that we all need to remember. The first thing that this story teaches us is when we are going through hard times, our God knows. Our God knows it. There is nothing that you endure in this life that the all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, all-knowing God of the universe doesn't know about. He knows everything about you. He knows your likes and your dislikes. He knows your schedule. He knows your to-do list. There is no fearful thought or terrifying trial that you might endure that God does not know about because our God knows. And Jesus, God in the flesh, clearly shows us this in chapter 11. John's, John's account tells us that before the messenger arrived, Jesus already knew that his friend was dead. You don't think so. To prove this, let me show you uh, that Jesus did know by looking at the timeline. The first day, the messenger arrives with the news that Lazarus is ill, but Jesus decides to remain where he is for two more days. The second day, Jesus deliberately stays where he is. The third day, Jesus departs for Judea. We know this because the Eastern cultures include the present day when counting elapsed days. The fourth day, Jesus continues his journey by taking his customary direct route through Samaria 
and he arrives in Bethany late in the day. And it is told that Lazarus has been dead for how many days? Four days. Lazarus was already dead when the messenger arrived to Jesus to tell him that Lazarus was ill. And as omniscient God in the flesh, Jesus knew this. He wasn't cruelly walking around in Perea to allow Lazarus to suffer and to die so that he could make a point. Jesus never turned down someone who in faith asked him for help. But Lazarus was already dead by the time the word came to him in Perea. I don't know about you, but it is comforting for me to know that our God is all-knowing, that he knows my fears, that he knows my personal frustrations that I face in my day. I, it encourages me to know that, that God knows about my struggles because that perspective greatly helps me when I personally deal with difficult times. This is one reason why I love the 139th Psalm, because David rejoices in the courage that this truth provides him. In this beloved Psalm, he affirmed the mind-boggling fact that our Lord and his li and possesses limitless knowledge and that his most precious, precious knowledge is his knowledge concerning you and I, his greatest creation, mankind. Listen as I read Psalm 139, verses one through four. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. That's a scary thought, isn't it? This fact that God knows everything about us as individuals is especially encouraging news in our day and time, because due to the world's ever-increasing population and the rapidly advancing technology, you and I are becoming just one in the crowd. More and more, we are seen as insignificant numbers. We are seen as, as statistical units in some computer database rather than unique human beings. And in addition to that, science continues to, to reveal just how big and how vast and how wonderful our universe is. And as a result, our planet has become insignificant. Earth has become like a speck of matter surrounded by, by galaxies measured by light years rather than miles. And all of this, all of this makes us wonder deep inside, who am I? And how could I possibly matter in all of this? Well, in the, in the book of Psalm, in this particular book of Psalm, David affirms the fact that you and I are super important and that we matter to the creator of the universe himself. And he is interested in every individual on this planet. David rejoices here that God knows. In fact, he says our creator has focused his attention on each of us from the instant that our life began. 
In Psalm 139, 13, David says this, for you, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verses 15 and 16 take God's focus back to the moment of conception. And it says this, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Now the Hebrew here literally means to fold together or to wrap up. It is in its noun form here in verse 16, and it means embryo. So in these verses, David is saying, in my very first seconds of life, when I was still wrapped up in embryonic form, you, God, you were watching over me. You were never absent, and you were never unconcerned. Back in verse 1 of this psalm, David says that God searches him. It conveys the idea of, of, of digging into or digging through something because God explores or digs into and he examines each of us through and through. David says that even in our most common and casual moments of sitting down and standing up, well, they are completely familiar with our Lord. I, I, when, I, when I hear that, I get this image of me when I was a little boy who idolized Major League Baseball players. I collected baseball cards. I was a freak at it, I, I loved it. I had a collection that my mom gave away to my nephew and it got destroyed. I can't even imagine what my collection would be worth today if I had it. Can you tell I'm a little sore about that? <laughs> anyway, my goal was to know all there was to know about these players, my favorite players, I wanted to know their batting average. You asked me a player, I could have told you what their batting average was. How many years they played on what team? How many hits, runs, and errors? I even grasped trivial information about their personal lives, like where they grew up, how old they were, uh, when their birth date was. Well, David says God knows all this and then some much more about you and me. He, his focus, he focuses his omniscience all around us, in every moment of our lives. In fact, he says that even our thoughts are an open book to God. Think about this for a moment. Thoughts come to our mind from a series of distant, fleeting conceptions as microscopic nerves relate to one another in the brain through a complicated process of different connections. Well, David says that those are known by God. As he puts it, God understands our thoughts from afar. You and I can see thoughts as they pop into people's minds when you see their face light up. And we can hear the thoughts that they have in their minds as it is released through the words that they speak. But one thing that we cannot do, we cannot see what happens between the entrance and the exit of those thoughts. And yet God can. God even understands what prompts us to think the thoughts that we have. He understands the hidden, unspoken motives behind all of our actions. Have you ever yearned to be completely understood by someone Have you ever had a kindred spirit with someone where communication was was so very easy because you were both on the same page? 
Well, as David says, no one understands or knows you as completely as our almighty and our all holy God. Even though he is infinitely different from us, our God knows. He knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He struggles with our victories, our moments, and our days. J.I. Packer writes this, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, that he knows me. I am graven in the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. There is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. There is unspeakable comfort in this truth. So God knows, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, he could not possibly know you any better than he already does. And that fact alone really should change our mindset when it comes to how you look at problems and when you look at heartbreaks in your life. Doesn't this vantage point help to bring you a little bit of comfort? Well, it should, and I know that it does. But John's account tells us that, that God does much more than know. Secondly, when going through hard times, our God cares. He truly cares. He is not some unconcerned creator who sits on the throne just watching and cataloging data about you and me. No, he cares. He is moved by the things that move us. He is concerned about the things that concern us. Look back at our text beginning with verse 18, and as you do so, let me tell you that funerals, like the funerals that took place in, in Lazarus' day, were a very important part of the culture of that time. I mean, as many people as possible attended these funerals. That is what John was getting at in verses 18 and 19 when he said, now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And everyone who came was expected to join into the funeral procession. But there was one curious custom that I want you to make note of. The women mourners walked first. You may ask, why was that? Because it was held that it was a woman who by her first sin brought death into the world. And therefore, women ought to be the leading mourners at the tomb. I think it's pretty obvious that a man probably started that custom, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> That's the way men are. We just blame our wives for everything. During this week of mourning, it is forbidden to, uh, well, excuse me, the, the, the deep mourning that, that I'm talking about that begins last for seven days, of which the first three days were of continuous weeping. And during that week, it was forbidden to anoint oneself, to put on shoes, to engage in any kind of, of study or, or business, and even to wash. These first days of, of deep mourning were followed by 30 additional days of lighter mourning when some of these restrictions that I just told you about were lifted. So when Jesus came to Lazarus' home in verse 17, it was during that week of deep mourning. And when he arrived, he found what anyone would expect to see in a Jewish house where someone had recently died. It was rooms that were crowded with sympathizers. Well, when Martha learned of, of Jesus' approach, she came out to him and she basically said, 
Where were you? And I think her words implied that, that it was Jesus' fault that Lazarus had died. No doubt she was thinking, what took you so long? Here, here we were, doing everything we could do, but you stood away from us at a distance, and you waited, and you delayed. Even though we notified you, you didn't come to help until now. Where were you, Jesus, when we were hurting? Have you ever stood at the grave of a loved one and asked that question? Have you ever wondered where God was when you were grieving and you were hurting down to the depths of your very being? Have you ever asked him, God, where were you when my father died? Where were you when my marriage fell apart? Where were you when I lost my job? Where were you when my child went astray? Where were you when I was so depressed I didn't think I could put one foot in front of another? I could not function. God, don't you care about what I'm going through? Well, before we deal with the answer to that question, I want you to note that Jesus did not reprove Martha for asking. And that should tell us very clearly that it is not sinful for us to be honest with God. And to tell him how we truly feel. He wants us to pour out our hearts to him. He wants us to be honest with him. And if you've ever honestly asked God, where were you? Then here's the answer. He was right there by your side. And he was hurting with you. He was grieving for the pain that you were feeling. Pain comes when we live in a fallen world. And God doesn't just know about it, but he cares about it. I like how Dr. Paul Brand answers the question, where is God when it hurts? He says this, God is in you, the one hurting, not in it, the thing that hurts. And we will see this fleshed out in how Jesus responds to Mary and Martha's pain because he was moved by their grief as if it was his own grief. On this day, Jesus, God in the flesh, he cried out. He wept openly, showing everyone how deeply he cared for this man and for this family. The women were apparently weeping when Jesus arrived, and I believe when Mary and Martha joined Jesus, both sisters broke down into uncontrollable sobs. You know how it is when you've gone through a heartbreak and a dear friend comes up to you. For some reason, the love that you have for that friend always triggers an emotional response, and I think that that's what happened here. Well, verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. When Jesus saw all of these hurting people, he was, God was, deeply moved. He was troubled in spirit. The Greek word here is the same one that is used to describe, believe it or not, a horse snorting. And in this context, it implies that our Lord let out an involuntary gasp. The wind kind of just went out from him. I mean, Jesus was so caught up in the grief of those sisters that he let out an involuntary gasp. He physically felt the sorrow with everything that he had. In fact, the Greek here takes it 
a step further. It infers that Jesus was very angry. And understand, he wasn't angry at Mary or Martha or any of their friends who were grieving with him. He was angry at death. He was angry with this enemy that had caused them so much pain. So Jesus responds in anger and he says, where have you laid him? He said this, I think, much like you and I would say, where is this bully known as death? Because I'm going to take him down because I'm the boss. So they took Jesus to the tomb. And when they got there, our Lord once again showed his empathy for his friends by weeping. Tears ran down his face. But I think this time, Jesus was weeping for Lazarus. I mean, he knew that in, in a moment, Mary and Martha's tears would, would be turned to joy. So he wasn't crying for them. But old Lazarus was about ready to be called back from heaven. Called back from the presence of God. Back to living once more in this fallen world. Can you imagine what it would be like? You die, you go to heaven. There is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no sorrow. You are in God's presence in a place of perfect peace, surrounded by loved ones who have gone before you. And then you get tapped on the shoulder and you say, excuse me, but you have to leave. You have to go back whence you came. You may disagree about my interpretation, but Jesus' response shows us that God enters the sorrow that we go through. His example shows us that our God is not some stoic, impassable God. We can look at Christ and know this because it says in Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In other words, Jesus is the living representation of God, and he tells us and he shows us how God responds to our trials. He shows us that we have a high priest who is deeply touched with the feelings that we have, with the infirmities that we have. God cares, ladies and gentlemen. And wouldn't you call that a wonderful vantage point for us to have? Doesn't that perspective change things for the better? In fact, he cares enough to let us go through tough times because those tough times help us to grow. Also, times of waiting. In those, in those times of waiting where we see things that we couldn't have seen in any other way. It's, his is not a pampering kind of a love. His is a perfecting love. And it's a love that helps us to see one final important truth of these three. Number three, when going through hard times, our God rules. Our God rules. I want you to look back at verse 23, where Jesus responds to Martha's question. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. In verse 24, we see Martha's response. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In essence, she was saying, don't give me theological facts, Jesus. 
I know my brother's going to rise on the last day, perhaps thousands of years from now, but that's not good enough. I want my brother here now. And in response to this, Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Please don't miss the pronoun I that is written here. Jesus doesn't say to her, look, you've got your theological facts correct. You're right on target, Martha. You're safe. No, instead he says, Martha, look at me. Martha, look up. I am God and I have power over death. I am the resurrection and the life. And because I rule, he who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. In other words, Jesus was saying, don't put your faith in theology. You need a better vantage point than that, Martha. Put your faith in me, he says, because I indeed rule over all things, even death itself. Now, I want you to note how Jesus taught Martha this vitally important fact. You see, the Jews believed that the spirit hovered near the body for three days after death. And then after that, the spirit left because the body would start to decompose. Well, Jesus timed his arrival in Bethany so that he got there after four days. So in the minds of these people, all hope was gone. Jesus lovingly waited in Perea so there could be no doubt that he was Lord over not just life, but he was Lord over death. When they took him to Lazarus' tomb, he ignored the sisters' warnings about the smell that would surely be coming out of that place because of the corpse, and he ordered the stone to be rolled away. And then after he prayed, he shouted, Lazarus, come out. By the way, I agree with many biblical scholars who say that if Jesus had not called out Lazarus' name specifically, that every corpse on earth would have come back to life. Why? Because our God rules. Well, to help you, help you with the, imagine the moments that followed, I want to read an excerpt from Chuck Swindoll's book called The Darkness and the Dawn. He writes, all eyes in the group surrounding Jesus were fixed on the darkness inside the now open tomb. An eerie chill ran up their spines as they stood in silence, mouths open. At first they saw nothing except a black hole where the tight jaws of death gripped its victim. Then someone said, look, look there, as they pointed towards someone or something moving inside the shallow cave. A grayish, awkward figure stirred, then rose slowly off the limestone shelf just inside the entrance. Dragging itself upright, the, few, the figure turned and shuffled toward the daylight. Arm in arm, the sisters start, stared in disbelief. Each could feel the heavy pounding in her chest. They sucked in their breasts, then gasped together. And then at Jesus' command, they sprang to the aid of their brother. One grabbed for the head napkin as the other grasped a loose end of one of the strips of cloth and began to pull it away. Quickly, they looked into Lazarus' eyes, which were bright and flashing with life. His broad smile reassured them, especially when he said to Mary, hurry up and get me out of this mess. Listen, friends, God does rule. 
He rules over all things. Any heartbreak that you can imagine, any challenges you face regarding your faith, even death itself, does that change your perspective on funerals or what? Shouldn't that improve how you look at a doctor's terrifying diagnosis? By the way, that phrase in verse four, when Jesus said, this sickness shall not end in death, that phrase applies to all Christians because God rules over death. And he says, if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, even though we die, we shall live. Eugene O'Neill wrote a play. It was called Lazarus Laughed. The play deals with the biblical story of Lazarus, but the plot focuses on what happened to him the years after Jesus called him back to life after four days in the tomb. In the play, Lazarus comes out of his grave and he's laughing. Not a scornful, bitter kind of a laughter, but a soft and a tender, all-embracing sort of sound that seems to well up from joy inside of him that is utterly endless. There is a radiance that is emanating from him that makes him look younger than before he died. There is a peace and there is a serenity about his being that is absolutely tangible. As, sooner, as soon as Lazarus gets home and the emotions have calmed down a bit, his sisters ask him this inevitable question. What is it like, Lazarus, beyond, beyond the grave? Tell us what sort of existence lies beyond our physical dying. And once again, Lazarus begins to laugh. It is a laughter of pure joy. And then he finally says, there is only life. There is only laughter. The laughter of God soaring into the heights and the depths. There is no death, really. Death is not the end. It's not an abyss or an interest into nothingness or chaos or punishment. Death is a portal, a passageway into deeper and brighter life. Eternal change, everlasting growth. That's what lies ahead. There is only life, sisters, nothing but life. The grave is not what you think it is. It is literally empty, a doorway, and not destruction. And as the play unfolds, Lazarus goes on. You can clap. Go ahead. It's all right. As the play goes on, Lazarus goes on to live a life. And in that life, he is now free from the fear of death. That dreaded horror no longer holds dominion over him because he has a divine perspective now on death. And we all should. All of us believers should. And that all happened through what Christ accomplished on that Roman cross. It allows us to have this same kind of a perspective. And that, ladies and gentlemen of High Point, that is our vantage point. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down? I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. This morning, I want to bring to your mind the greatest challenge that you are personally facing today. I'm talking about the issue that brings you the greatest amount of fear. And as you replay that nightmare in your mind, 
I want you to listen to these, these three facts. My God knows, my God cares, and my God rules. Those nine words, I think, should provide you with a totally different vantage point. Those nine words can change things for the good. But I believe that there are many people here in this place today, and many who are joining us online, and you are living in fear of some kind, and you need to be delivered from your fears. You see, those fears hold you back. Those fears prevent you from moving forward in a productive way in your relationship with the Lord. And when you think about it, it's always a little voice in your head that creates those fears. But you need to understand something. The voice that brings about those fears is not the voice of God. I love that Christian song that talks about the voice of truth. Here's how you know it's the wrong voice, because the voice of truth is devoid of all fear. In fact, the scriptures tell us that God is love and that perfect love casts out all fear. So fear by its nature is not of God, and yet it is very commonplace in our minds and in our hearts as people. Maybe you are fearful this morning over COVID, over other health issues. Maybe you have fear over potentially losing your job. Maybe you fear where your marriage is heading this morning or some decisions that your children who are now adults are making. Perhaps you fear the future as you clearly see things shifting in our nation and us going in directions that maybe you don't understand or agree with. Maybe God is calling you to do something great for his kingdom, but you're allowing fear to hold you back. That voice tells you a thousand reasons why you can't do that when you need to quit listening to that voice and listen to the voice of truth that will tell you, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Whatever kind of fear you are experiencing today, do not forget what you've been shown this morning. God knows, God cares, and God rules. And he understands the fears that paralyze us. But the difference is not only does he understand but he's the only one that can remove those fears and replace them with his peace. The word of God calls it the peace that passes all understanding. Maybe your greatest fear this morning is if Jesus called all believers home today, you're not sure you're ready. You're fearful that maybe you'd be left behind. Well, can I just say that that fear can be removed immediately by saying a sincere prayer of belief and confession to Jesus this morning? Acknowledge him as God's son and the only way to God the Father, that he is the only pathway to this eternal life that Jesus has promised us. So if you're dealing with fear on any level, and the truth is, I really believe if I could open up your heads and look at your thoughts, at least 50% of you in here are fearful of something right now. And I say that only because I've talked to a lot of people of late, and the conversations that I've had are always built around fear. We, of all people, 
should not be fearing the future. I realize it's scary. I realize there's things going on we don't understand. This is all a part of God's plan. And instead of fearing what we see, we need to do what the Bible says and we need to lift up our heads because our redemption is drawing nigh. You get that? For us to expect that there's not gonna be difficulties before our redemption draweth nigh, I think is wrong. We live in a broken world. We're gonna to have to deal with some issues. We're gonna to have to face some struggles. There is going to be fear, but don't allow that fear to hold you back. Don't allow that fear to prevent you from doing what you know God wants you to do. Don't allow that fear to prevent you from moving forward in your faith. God has greater things in store for you. He's got bigger plans for you than you have even fathomed. And if you will just lean into him, ask him to remove those fears and allow him to do a work in your life. Oh, what a change you will see in your outlook. Maybe you're here today and you have some kind of a need. Maybe you're here today and you just want to thank the Lord for his goodness and his faithfulness to you. It doesn't matter why you come down to this altar, but this altar is open. Whatever it is, I want the worship team's going to sing. Come down to this altar. We're going to spend some time. The pastors will come lay hands and pray for you. We're done with that. We will close in prayer. If you need to sit, fine. But I will ask that if you don't come to this altar, would you please, as you sit, would you please pray for the individuals who are kneeling at this altar? Pray for them like it was your son or daughter or husband or wife. Pray for them as your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Jesus Christ.
who have come to the altar continue to pray and you can pray here as long as you'd like I'd like the rest of you to stand let's dismiss this service in prayer precious Lord we thank you we thank you for your many blessings we thank you for your faithfulness we thank you for salvation for your spirit that indwells us we thank you that you have given us everything that we need to live a life that glorifies you and the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. And I lift up my church family to you, Father, every person present in this place today, and I just ask, God, that we would remember that you are in charge, you are in control, you care, you know, you rule over all things. And when we don't, and for some reason, can't see you in the sin that goes on in this world, for us to remember that your heart breaks just like ours. You understand the feelings that we are, we are experiencing. But Father, for us to know that you are the only remedy to that fear. You are the only one who can subside those feelings inside of us. You are the only one who can make us look upward and to say, my redemption draweth nigh. Because we believe in you and we trust in your promises and you have promised us eternal life in the presence of Almighty God, either when our time on this earth is done or when you decide to take us home. And we thank you for that promise. So Father, I pray that we would walk in boldness and confidence in that truth. That we would not cower. That we would not act like all is done because it's just beginning for us, Lord. You have so much in store for us, and I pray that we would see that, and that as a church, we would rise up, and we would do greater things than we've ever done before in these difficult days. Why? Because people are lost, and people are hurt, and they need the truth of Christ Jesus. And now that we have it, now that we know it, now that we've experienced it, that we would share it with others. Father, I pray against fear, I bind it in the name of Jesus. 
the name above all names, including the word called fear, that by its very nature is not of God. And I pray that you would replace that fear with understanding and love and peace and mercy and grace. And that we would operate as men and women who know what our future holds. And we can stand in joy in knowing that. So fathers, we go our separate ways today. I ask in the name of Jesus that your spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be designed to build up and not tear down, that we would shine such a, a bright light in this dark world, that people would come to us and say, what is different about you? And it's because of your love that comes shining through. And when that happens, God, and you open that door, then give us the words to speak as we know you will to share your goodness with someone else. I pray for an opportunity for each one of us this week to share your goodness with someone, to bring them into the house of God with them and see them gloriously saved, if not during our conversation with them or when they come here into the church and we give them an opportunity to receive you as Lord and Savior. Father, I also pray that between now and the time we meet again, that you would keep us safe, safe from sickness and disease like COVID and every other kind of sickness and disease that is out there. Pray that you would also protect us from any accidents that might befall us that would prevent us from joining together with our church family and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Now I ask as we leave, Holy Spirit, that you would guide and direct us, that you would use us this week, you would help us to exemplify the glory of God in our attitudes, in our conversations, in all the situations we find ourselves, and that we would remember no matter what the three truths that we've learned today. And I ask it in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.